It's uh, 2023, and we are going to be talking about anniversary movies uh, on There's Nostalgia Like Nostalgia this year. Um, there's a lot of big ones coming up uh, for you know very popular movies and some obscure movies, but they're all, they all have something in common, which is they are turning a number years old. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, and, and we're kicking and things off. three. Yes. Well, not the anniversary number, but the yeah, the the year it came out uh, three or I think eight yeah. uh, in some cases. You know, the five. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, but, I, but but this year or this month, we are talking about Cabin in the Sky, which came out in 1943. Um, and it's also it's weird because there's another um, there's a birthday associated with this. Uh, the director Vincent Minnelli, who is um, Liza Minnelli's dad, his birthday was February 28th. 1903 so we are 120 wow. 120 years uh just shy of a day of his wow. of that birthday <laughs> crazy. crazy and he's a, he was a he was born in chicago i didn't i didn't know that until yep. i was looking up some stuff on the the film now this is based on a, a 1940 broadway show with an all-black right. cast it was turned into right. a a film with an all-black cast um, and it is sort of it's a, a redemption tale. It's it's very clearly a morality uh, tale um, as is spelled out in the title cards, you know, a lot of kind of religious uh, Christian themes. Um, but it's a film that I watched probably 15 years ago or so, and I'd forgotten a lot okay. about it. So the chance to revisit it and talk about it with you um, was was quite a thrill. Um, had you seen this yeah, before? Same fear. I never seen it before. So and I'm a I'm a fairly um high student of the studio era so this was exciting for me because it's definitely in the midst of the highest end of the of the uh, studio era and it was made during world war ii and there's a great um very subtle i think clever world war ii uh reference um there there right. are angels and demons in this movie and at one point, the head demon, who is uh, Lucifer Jr., is complaining because he's the head of the ideas department in hell. And right. all of his minions are having trouble coming up with good ideas. And he says, I apparently got the the B team. The A team is working things out over in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the uh, and, and that was a, a big transition point for blacks in America because. They were called to serve in the war, but the army was still segregated. And, um, and you know, they were also given some subservient roles, uh, the exceptions being the Tuskegee Airmen and, and such. But this was a, a, the first period in sort of the post-Civil War era where Blacks were actually participating in the patriotism of America after not being allowed at the table. For so long so interesting perspective on everything uh in the sense of where this film comes from so yeah it's also um you know i haven't watched a whole lot of i guess black centric films from this era one thing that struck out uh, immediately a is that it was literally an all-black cast and b it's right. uh it seems to be self-contained in terms of its culture and politics it's almost as if it's a world in which white people don't exist. I mean, they don't have they don't talk about, you know, systemic oppression, not that they necessarily thought in or had those terms for it 
uh, back then. But mm-hmm. it's just it's people going about their lives and dealing with the 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 problems that are sort of universal uh, to all people, which it's kind of unfortunate that, you know, as with the times, you know, this film was was protested in some theaters. It was shut down um, because, yeah. you know, you, you can't have an all <laughs> an all black movie. That's crazy. That's wrong. Um, but I, it I just is one can't of believe that, that the pol- I okay. can't believe that they used the police to actually raid a theater after the film had been going on for 30 minutes because it's such a, it was such an offense to delicate sensibilities. Crazy yeah, and that's and it just I guess it speaks to the times because watching this in, you know, 2023 and perhaps yeah. this is this is the effect of, you know, having 80 years of this film being around and then the civil rights movement and the enactment of, of, you know, federal civil rights 20 years after this movie came out, I'm watching it as not as a, a black picture, as you might think of it, just as I'm, I'm relating to the, relating to these characters and these sort of, you know, midlife existential, you know, spiritual crises that they're going through. <laughs> not, I, not, not that I have a I, dice problem or anything like that. <laughs> I, I, you know, that's interesting. You bring that up. I was very interested in the, uh, in the church angle, because, uh, again, historically, you know, African Americans rose up through the church, and the one thing that um, blacks and whites, even though they were segre- mostly segregated during that time, had in common was religion, and of course, Dr. Martin Luther King came out of the church. And many of the the uh, civil rights leaders that were to come uh, came out of the church. So the use of the church in this piece, and I'm sure it, it's the same as a stage play, was very much a character that permeates the whole story. You know, you have the you have the good of the church and the bad of the nightclub, and uh, never the twain shall meet, as we find out. <laughs> but I mean, it's interesting because a lot of that, uh, you're right, and a lot of the the great speeches and ideas that came out of the civil rights uh, movement, you know, the, a lot of that language is based, you know, in kind of theological principles. I don't know if it was right. a, a conscious strategy, but it, I think, did help to, in some ways, at least plant the seeds to bridge those gaps of like, we're talking in the same language that you're using right. when you go to church every Sunday you know, what makes us so different? Um, well, how yeah. can you purport to be a Christian if you if you reject certain elements of love thy fellow man? You're, you, right. you, you know, you become a hypocrite. And uh, I think that's, it was a natural um, way of infiltrating uh, in the early civil rights movement that grew, of course, because it was so successful. Yeah, and so the, the movie at hand... Um, it's about a, a couple, the uh, the Jacksons. You've got Petunia, um, played by Ethel Waters, and Little Joe, Amazing. played by Eddie Rochester Little Anderson. Um, she is very much a, a, a spiritual woman, a woman of the church, um, prays constantly for her husband, who has a severe gambling problem. What do they call them? Uh, his calamity cubes, uh, the dice that he rolls, and he's buying I, I like, was, lottery tickets. When he tickets first and... referenced that, I was like, is uh, I thought it was some sort of like like talisman not a i didn't realize there were dice until finally uh, it, it occurred to me <laughs> i i picked up on it right away probably in, in fairness because i'd seen it before but i was like okay. they should just call dice calamity cubes that's a great that's yeah, I know. a great it's, name it, for it's it amazing 
<laughs> but so little Crazy Joe has descriptive element. Right. But he's got this uh, this problem. Uh, he has at the beginning of the picture, he has ostensibly turned his life around and he's going to church with Petunia to essentially be reborn. Um, but right. he, there's a there's a knock at the window and a bunch of his you know, gambling <laughs> buddies come to you know seek, drag him out in secret and say, uh, hey, there's uh, something going down at the, the gambling hall. Um, and there was uh, was it that character comes about later. What what was the name of was his it, was it Domino? Was it Domino Johnson? Domino, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Domino. Uh, Perfect name for a for a gambling hustler, right? Uh, so sure. Domino Johnson's in town. He's got a lot of money to throw around. There's a prospect for if if uh, little Joe is going to retire anyway and and find God, he might as well do it with one last big you know bankroll. So they convince exactly. him to go down to this gambling hall. <laughs> he gets shot and just about mortally wounded during this game, and so right. begins a battle for his soul. Uh, like a literal one. Like I mentioned, there's angels and demons vying for uh, possession of his you know, immortal spirit. And the deal that they strike is they're going to send him back to Earth for six months. He's going to have no memory of this conversation, but he has six months to turn his life around and come to God, essentially, and reject you know, gambling and, and all the, the wicked ways of the world. And that's the, that's, it's like a half hour into this hour and a half plus movie, but the, the plot really kicks into place after that. Well, I, one of the things that um, I, I didn't delve much into the stage play um, of Cabin in the Sky, but one of the things that struck me about just the story was the presumption that, you know, black men are the ones that need to be saved and they need to be saved by their good women, good Christian women. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, with, of course, the preachers being the ones that are the bridge, um, you know, they're the proof that there are good black men out there, that they're not just shiftless gamblers and people who naturally um, have affairs with, Lena Horn. So <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I was I mean, like, I, it was so interesting to me that, you know, the presumption was that, you know, the black man is, is the one that needs to be saved to save the overall atmosphere and civilization of, uh, of the, of the world that is created in the, in the, in the uh, movie. Well, I mean, the, I, I do, I do take your point, but I mean, if we were to extrapolate that and look at some other depictions of like, uh, in movies, it is typically the the men who have to be saved, you know, kind of regardless of race. There's always some kind of a problem, not necessarily like degenerate <laughs> gambling or something, but usually it's the mom who's like the the homemaker. She's holding down the family. She's you know trying to keep it together, everyone, because the the dad is an alcoholic or a womanizer or, or a gambler. Um, you know, I was talking to Jeff York about um, Hollywood Shuffle, um, in which is another conversation is going to be coming out and how. Uh, the supporting characters, the female supporting characters in that movie were not drawn particularly imaginatively or certainly not in the way that we would look at them today. And I think that's the case in Cabin in the Sky. But I think it's partially because there was the civil rights movement that was, you know, very, to my understanding, and I think of depictions of popular media, very men centric. And it wasn't until later that they kind of got a more holistic view of everybody as sort of people deserving of their own kind of plot lines. Well, I, I just 
to me, it just played into the stereotype of black men uh, that I think was perpetuated at the time, you know, mm-hmm. over, over, uh, overstimulated, oversexed, you know, they have to be reined in by the, by the uh, aspect of the church. Uh, well, I, I, I just, I just punched up Lynn Wood's name, who wrote the libretta, and Lynn L Y N N. I assume he's a dude, because I don't know. It didn't have much background on him, but you know, it was well, just interesting to me. Yeah, and, and there was. I know there's been some criticisms of this movie, as yeah. you're going to find with a lot of, you know, entertainment for that was targeted at you know the black community back then of you know leaning into stereotypes especially because you've got you know a a white director it's it's sort of this this outsider directing the insiders in terms of like this is how you should portray again going kind of back to the hollywood shuffle uh you know can you can you play it more black and this is how we think that that the you should portray this on screen and this is how you should be and you had these actors who you know many of them were just i think excited to work on like a kind of a studio picture they're like yeah this is the work we can get things are going to get better from right. here but they won't unless we start something well some of the background notes made a big deal about how producer arthur freed one of the most famous of uh, the mgm musical era and uh, vincent minnelli sought out um the naacp at the time and preachers and everything to, to go over the script and make sure that they weren't, you know, push, push, pushing on the gas pedal too much when it came to stereotypes. I find after watching it that it's more about the entertainment rather than any kind of, you know, stereotypical characteristics. But again, I'm looking at historically and as an outsider and all that stuff. So, um, it just it's a fascinating film altogether oh yeah i I think cabin in the sky is great but there are pockets and it's hard to say how much of this was stereotyped due to insensitivity versus just you know comedic effect for example uh i mentioned lucifer jr and his minions there's the one guy who is you know half asleep and he has to be kind of roused out he's kind of got that yes master you know that that kind of like the really stereotypical delivery it's not flattering you've got mantan moreland um who had an entirely you know other career in in films my dad was a big fan of his but he's got like the the big you know bugged out you know bug eyes kind of thing and you know little joe jackson the way that he's portrayed is the the no good kind of carousing like obnoxious heel um it's talk about miracles petunia jackson must really love her husband because i don't know how she stayed with him and prayed with him <laughs> prayed for him so hard through everything he put her through in this movie well also too uh, interesting about eddie eddie rochester anderson uh that's his full name he goes by his character popularized by jack benny uh a very interesting background on his character and he was the most popular person on the Benny program besides Jack Benny, I guess. But, you know, he had a a crew of uh, regulars on his show, but it was, it was Rochester that everybody loved. Now we don't know if they loved him because of the, you know, the, his portrayal of the, of the, uh, of the black man that they thought the black man was, or that he was just a great 
comedic person. And if you listen to the old Benny shows or see the old Benny uh, um, uh, television show, Rochester is, I mean, Benny's a straight man for Rochester's antics and Rochester's a very funny character. And, and again, reading the background after World War II, Benny was very, Jack Benny was very affected by the Holocaust and the situation that came out of that. And he told his writers that we're taking every racial stereotype away uh, out of Rochester's character from here on in, and also was a big human rights guy after that. So interesting, interesting story. And he played that character from 1937 to 1965. My gosh, I mean, crazy. Wow. And, and through, all the way into the mid civil rights era, 65 was, you know, the the apex of the civil rights era. It's crazy to play that kind of character that long and go through all that change. So, well, it's also interesting because he and also one other cast member, at least one other cast member, um, I didn't look to mm -hmm. see if anyone else was listed, but um, Butterfly McQueen, who plays Lily. Uh, the, yep. Both actors were in Gone with the Wind. I think like four years. So was Oscar uh, Polk, and so was okay. uh, so was Ernest Whitman. I mean, yeah, they were <laughs> they were people. They were they were working actors. They took their roles, you know. Yeah, I mean, Hattie McDaniel kind of gets the the brunt of the attention for for Gone with the Wind um, because sure. a, a lot of that movie, as much as it is, you know, about slavery it's about kind of everything else surrounding that culturally in the south of that time right um but yeah it's it's got to be it's interesting to see these characters going from portraying that kind of uh, the the slave servant uh role four years earlier to being again in cabin in the sky where there's almost completely separated that like from that uh from that reality now at least in terms of the way that the characters uh talk and and portray their existence in the film as i mentioned it's almost a pocket reality where it's outside of every you know other influence right. almost like a, a, a parallel universe mm -hmm. but um uh oscar polk interestingly enough i would say besides butterfly mcqueen had one of the most prominent roles in gone with the wind uh he played the uh butler that's right uh, not the butler the house butler at at uh at uh, Tara, um, and uh, he he plays the deacon. He has a very small role at the beginning, where they uh, him and the uh, uh, main preacher have a conversation. He said, "Well, you can't send the deacon. You have to send the uh, you have to go yourself to get to get uh, Eddie Anderson's character to the church." <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's um, and I was trying to look this up. What is the the person who played the head, I guess, archangel who's trying to save uh, Little Joe? I didn't catch his name. Um, he is Rex Ingram, and he is a veteran black actor who was literally plucked off the street when he was a, uh, a young young man and put in the Tarzan movies. So no, he no, played he, a he lot was, of them. Well, he played native. he played Lucius. He was the he was okay. the uh, the bad guy, right? I'm talking about the uh, the 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 guy who was trying to save uh, Little Joe. Oh, the preacher. Yeah. Uh, he had he had like I'm another name. Yeah. Right. Uh, I can't. Yeah, the I got the deacon, which was Oscar Polk, 
And his name was Polk in, in uh, Gone with the Wind, by the way. Oh. I used to be a big, big... I would say Gone with the Wind was one of the most influential books and films in my pop culture education as a young man. Embarrassingly so now, but again, it's just like your isolation is your isolation. And if you hook into something, because I was a big reader and and uh, and film buff, if you hook into something based on your, you know, your study, that was one of my big things. I I, I just love that film for its its pop culture influence, and and later to realize how I, I first realized it reading the autobiography of Malcolm X of everything. Uh, hmm you know, and how embarrassed he was to go see that film because of the uh, way blacks were, were portrayed in it. And from then on, that's all I could see. You know, I, so I you, saw Gone with the Wind for goes. the... Well, I was going to say, I saw Gone with the Wind for the first time two months ago um, oh, at wow. a screening at the, uh, the Pickwick Theater because it was going to be the last movie they showed before they shut down but they you know under new ownership so the theater is going to continue to go it was the right, first movie they right. showed and they wanted it to be the last movie so i went with my wife neither of us had seen it before and we both loved it um partially because we had heard all the stories about what the movie was and we mm -hmm. walked away thinking it's not really that i mean it's not the right. it's a, definitely a film of its time so you're going to have different portrayals, uh, not so flattering portrayals of of black people as we would, you no. know, if we were to try and take tackle that subject matter today. But in terms of the main characters, you know, Scarlet and Rhett, the, this movie does not like its central characters. This is not a pro South, pro glory of slavery movie. It chronicles well, the downfall a, of these people. I would say it's a pro lost cause thing. Meaning that I, there's not real real punishment for the main reason that they were fighting the war, which was the North wanted to free the slaves. I, you know, I again, that's that's a whole other conversation. I, I did a podcast. Right, on I know, it I know. With, you know, um, but I'm but, just saying that that's one of the reasons that I'm not as conducive toward it that, that I was when I was a younger guy. So I, it's. Again, it's complicated, and it's based on the fact that I've probably seen the film over 10 times. And it's just my journey with it. And your journey was you saw it two months ago for the first time. So <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a different kind of thing. Totally. For sure. Um, but yeah, it was just interesting to see those kind of those uh, portrayal parallels in uh, Cabin in the Sky. Um, yeah, and it's also strange I mean, to see a movie that came out four years later being black and white. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, go ahead. I was going to say the this is a it's a black and white film that came out after the you know the the brilliant color of of Gone with the Wind. Right. But one thing that I was struck by, and I didn't pick up on this the first time I watched it, uh, was the the film making. Like, there's some bona fide like special effects and really. Uh, I think right. especially there's a there's a harrowing fight at the end in the gambling hall where literally Petunia, you know, this is a spoiler, folks, but Petunia prays for, uh, you know, divine intervention. And God comes, I think she says, you know, God, please come strike down this place of sin or something like that. All of a sudden, right. a freaking tornado shows up right out <laughs> right outside the window 
It, it is very Wizard of Oz, which was also uh, well, you know, same, it, they use the same effect in the Wizard of Oz. It, it was it, the same it, tornado it, effect as the Wizard of Oz. It looked exactly like it. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But you've got people fighting each other. You've got people running out the doors <laughs> and you've got the Crazy. main characters. Uh, you've got Domino and um, Little Joe tussling with each other. And then there's gunplay. Petunia gets shot. Joe gets shot. Lena it's Horne, crazy. which you mentioned in passing, her character, Georgia Brown, is stumbling through this wreckage as literally like hunks of building are falling all around her. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> tense. I had forgotten the it's, outcome it, of this scene. I'm like, did everybody die in this? What happened? <laughs> it was amazingly realistic to me, which 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 stunned me. I was like, well, here's this light, not light, but this musical, mostly musical numbers. Then suddenly we have this disaster sequence. <laughs> I was like, that's crazy. <laughs> right. I mean, it's the when the gun comes out, you're expecting, OK, because they had established that it's, you know, little Joe has six months to turn his <laughs> life around and they established that, oh, it's six months. Tonight's the night. You know, his time's up. You figure the gun comes out. He's going to die and have to deal with the consequences. But Petunia right, goes right. first. And then when Joe goes up to see, you know, to help her out or whatever, I think there was an accident. I think Domino like misfired the gun or something or he swung wildly and they both end up dying and going to that kind of limbo place. And, and then we getting see the... crushed by the building. <laughs> right. <laughs> they got crushed by the building. And but when they go up to limbo, you get this great shot of these literal stairs winding up and up and up Amazing. to heaven. It's a great little Amazing. mat shot. Um but I yeah, mean, and, and and you is go ahead. I was gonna say there's there's characters when the angels and the demons appear, they're fade, they're popping in and out of you know the scene, you know, all in camera effects, but they're very smooth. I mean, it looks like magic. Yeah, it's really well done. It's really well done. I think it was like Minnelli, his first directorial effort after being on Broadway was coming in and saying, well, how do I use this train set? Much like Orson Welles came in with Kane and said, how do I use these these um, effects to to tell my story? And, you know, it, it was really, really kind of epic when you think about it. I, I think anybody who had saw it in the era would have said, wow, you know, that's a crazy way to end this film. And then, like you said, the descent into wherever they're going, I assume heaven, is is uh is so mystical and in fact uh, you were talking about the black and white aspect of it just before they released the film they decided it would look, look better in sapia tone so that's how it was originally released it was only when they released it on dvd that they they didn't play up that sapia tone so, uh think of the wizard of oz again in the black and white sequences was actually in sapia tone right i well, two things. One, watching this, there's a different effect, I imagine, watching it on my laptop at four o'clock in the morning, as I did today. <laughs> then I watched catching it, today it too. Right. But I would love to see this in a movie theater. You know, yes. It's, I don't know if it's a tough question. Let me pose this to you. Is the, this the kind of thing that would be re-released today even in like an art house revival theater do you think it would be considered problematic somehow well i would think it would be something that would be re-released as a discussable movie I, I think you could you could definitely 
have a, a nice panel of uh, uh, maybe critics and African-American arts people talking about it afterward because it's significant. I think, yes, it would be revived. I think it even could be revived without discussion just on the fact that it's the first uh, studio picture that had an all-black cast. It's not the first movie that had an all-black cast. There were race films, but this was a... Um, the arts are always the progressive point, and MGM being the biggest studio was going to be the one that is going to make this musical uh, and show the world that everybody's human. In yeah. fact, they had a policy in their commissary, <laughs> commissary that blacks and whites could not eat together. And freaking Louis B. Mayer said, great, they'll come to my private dining room. And then the next day, everybody <laughs> could eat at the... Uh, and the commissary so yeah there was there was definitely a, a you know again the um the jewish people that that created hollywood and african-americans were always together in the sense of of their they were they're uh judged unfairly by the uh uh writ large society so Interesting. One of the re re things I wanted to bring up about the cast, too, I wanted to look at the cast, again, since it's Black History Month, as to the, to their interaction with the civil rights movement that was only 10 years away or a dozen years away from the Montgomery bus uh, boycott, which uh, in, in essence began the movement, um, but also post-World War II, which was a huge thing because uh, uh, Blacks came to the table and fought the war and then were coming home to uh, the same discriminatory practices, they weren't going to have any of it anymore. Right. And also another fact about Lena Horne, which was, which blows my mind. She was asked to entertain the troops, but uh, she didn't want to be in any audiences that were segregated. But of course the army... And, and the military itself were segregated. They would actually put the white German prisoners of war in the front row and the and the African American soldiers who fought for this country in the in the in the rows afterward. So Lena Horne would start her show by moving through the audience and sing only to the to the uh, black soldiers and had her back to the German POWs. But it's just like why would he even bring the POWs to the show? That's not anyway. It's... So anyway, I looked at Ethel Waters was the most fascinating because I knew nothing about her before this movie, and she just had a, a incredible uh, journey through her show business life, both of horrible prejudice and 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 enlightenment. Uh, in fact. Um, uh, Elia Kazan, who directed her in Pinky, uh, called her a combination of religiosity and free-flowing hatred. I mean, <laughs> imagine such a description for a person? Wow. Well, yes, because we do get a glimpse of her as a more, not necessarily as a, as a person, but as a performer and a performance, because yeah. Petunia is... She's the most enjoyable one-note performance you could watch for the first 
two thirds of this movie because she is right. she's the saintly housewife who's praying for her husband. She really wants to. Right. She doesn't know anything about this bargain with the devils and the angels. She just really wants to make sure because she believes she's going to heaven when she dies. She wants nothing more than to spend eternity with her husband. But right. towards the end of the film, when the devil is sort of running out of plays, uh, he conspires to have little Joe win this Irish sweepstakes, which is going to net him $50,000 in 1943 dollars or whatever it is. That's like almost a million bucks now. Right. So that is going to, you know, for sure going to be the corrupting influence on a degenerate gambler. Right. Plus, and, and it shows he gets the money thanks to Georgia Brown, who is, she's a human being, but she is like the favored temptress, like Lucifer's preferred oh, daughter, essentially. Um, and, uh, little Joe essentially he decides he wants to donate the money to church. That's his initial instinct is, oh, this is going to be great. I can really help people. And then he kind of embraces Georgia and says, look, I wouldn't have had this ticket if you hadn't brought it to me because he didn't know how to read. She did. She presents it to him, right, as part of the temptation. But he says, I'm going to buy you a, a diamond bracelet and a fur coat, and then you're going to be yeah. set up the just as a gesture. Right, but it's a gesture of friendship and gratitude. And of course, Petunia comes walking by right at yeah. that inopportune yeah. moment and she, yeah. you know, chews out her husband. Some time passes. We go back to the gambling hall. Everyone's dressed in their finest. Little Joe is buying drinks for everyone and he's blown most of his money. Petunia comes back in. It's the same night that Domino Joe has been released from prison for having shot uh, Little Joe. Uh, and she just kind of, turns to the dark side you know quite yeah, it's a bit. really wild yeah really we, wild. we get a taste of it early on when she's uh trying to out con the con men with the dice game which is kind of right. fun that shows a bit of a savvy but towards the end of this picture we really get the sense of you know she could be uh, sort of a, a dangerous woman if she had if she had not had those uh those kind of religious aspirations well, both sides of the coin are well played by her. She's She has a fascinating face. That's what really drew me to her. Um, and, and a voice like heaven. She, her, her, her singing voice is so unique. Uh, and again, not somebody that I knew of before. And in fact, I, I, I it was interesting to me to understand, you know, and I, I've been in the pop culture ferment for low these many years so here's what here's the people i knew i knew eddie rochester anderson of course probably the best but then second would be louis armstrong oh yeah and then third would be lena horn then last would be butterfly mcqueen uh, and, and, and duke actually, ellington shows up in the sure. um to play in the in the big closing bar scene yeah but those four ranked would be the ones that I knew of the best. I know Duke Ellington, of course, and I'm glad you you mentioned him because he was not mentioned in the credits of the of the, uh, of the movie. But um, but I actually saw Butterfly McQueen on stage in the '70s. I it 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 came back to me after watching the movie again. Uh, there was a touring company of Showboat, and she's she was prominent in the cast. And you know that distinct voice that I actually saw it live it was crazy. Wow. <laughs> and then I was reading her bio, and she just completely, at that point in time, had kind of given up on show business and was going back to school and 
a lot of a very diverse person, but obviously she hooked into this. They offered her this part in Showboat Touring Company, and it came to Bloomington, Indiana, and that's where I saw her. <laughs> wow, crazy! You think about it. But the point, the reason I bring up the ranking of the people who I I, I knew, I knew I knew very little about Lena Horne and um, and uh, and Butterfly McQueen. Nothing about Ethel Waters, who had, has done so many amazingly pioneering performances in black entertainment history. I mean, but she was also a, a person with many, many demons and was also a, a huge Jesus freak who followed Billy Graham around toward the end of her life. So very interesting context with her. Well, it sounds like she was consistent at least uh, <laughs> as yeah. far as the, as far as the, you know, the religiosity and uh, I yeah. imagine this would be a good, you know, that, that nice, marriage of your beliefs and your passions and your work you know being able to to get that message across because yeah it is a very religious and spiritual movie but it's oddly not preachy it's almost like just a no it's almost no, like, it a, like a sci-fi play of like angels and demons fighting over an immortal soul right but it's also a charming musical that the one song um and i can't remember the name of it uh it was basically the song about little Joe that was nominated for, for an Academy award that uh, yeah. when this came out. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, one of the things about waters too, because of her religiosity, I think she was able to play both sides of the coin very well uh, going back to Elia Kazan's statement, but also the um, you know, when she goes to the dark side at the end and suddenly is this, this kind of vampy character trying to show up Joe uh, she did that well too. So I yeah. think she 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 can plug into both sides of that because of her experience in life. And uh, I was uh, I was fairly impressed with Rochester too because obviously I only know him as Rochester. Yeah, he, he did several other movies around, but pretty much staying within the context of that character. Interestingly enough, not uh, in the movie. It's a mad, 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 mad world. He he was not really playing the Rochester character, but just a, one of the frantic characters looking for the treasure in that movie, which uh, again, is just like what, what a, the depth and breadth of these people as they moved along that path of the 20th century is extraordinary. I mean, Lena Horne was at the March of Washington. Louis Armstrong funded a lot of the uh, civil rights movement. He worked behind the scenes, writing checks when they needed it. You know, and did you see the um, Apple TV Plus uh, documentary about Louis Armstrong? <clears throat> no, I didn't. Is that is it new or uh, is it? Yeah, it's new. It's it's uh, Louis Armstrong's Black and Blues, and basically because he was in 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 the black community, he was looked as sort of an Uncle Tom character because he was that he he did that happy act, and they they always looked at it as. Well, he's placating the white audience so he could be. But he was a hell of a lot more than that. And Ozzie Davis tells a great story in the in the in the documentary about when he was working with him, he saw him in the corner just relaxing and taking off the Louis Armstrong persona and just relaxing as a man. And Davis said, I saw that in all my relatives, the the burdens of life completely on their shoulders. 
And he, he said, then you went up to Satchmo and he became that character again, you know, but he said that glimpse into his soul where he had the burden of, of, of that unique thing that, that uh, African-American men had to go through in the mid 20th century. Uh, well, it reminds me of a discussion. So. It reminds me of a discussion we had a few years ago when that mm -hmm. uh, Sammy Davis Jr. documentary uh, came out. Yes. Um, you know, this yeah. is something that happened uh, probably 20 years uh, ish, you know, after this happened. But you've got, yeah, Sammy Davis Jr. is the the black guy in the Brat Pack or the sorry, the Rat Pack, not right. the Brat Pack. That would be very interesting. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, but, yeah. you know, the, the sort of the man out of time when that went when his music sort of went out of the Sinatra music went out of fashion to civil rights right. concerns to, you know, just who is he um, in his life? Uh, right. Yeah, I mean, I got to check out that documentary. Uh, Apple TV Plus, you say? Uh, hmm. Yeah, uh, Arms, Louis Armstrong's Black and Blues. And I recently watched a Sammy doc again. Mm. And uh, one of the things that struck me was that there's here's a connection to Cabin in the Sky. There was there was a, um, a, a documentary, a, doc, a, a short in the 30s where Sammy was a kid, kid dancer called Rufus Jr. for president. Who's his co-star? Ethel Waters. I was like, <laughs> I'm like, what? You know, so I'm going to look more into Ethel Waters' life. I, I, I'm totally fascinated with her now. Uh, you know, and, and she also had fascination with, with the um, uh, show business historians. There's a lot of books on her. There was a one-woman show about her. So there's a lot of uh, interesting um persona to dig into with her that i found fascinating i might have to add that to my pile uh, if i find yeah. a good uh, good good biography um but yeah any any kind of closing thoughts on on cabin in the sky well again i think one of the most remarkable elements of it number one it was the first uh studio picture that had an all-black cast in response to how the world was changing, number one. And number two, you know, catering to a large black audience who only had the race films and only had specific theaters they could go to. This was an idea of progress. This is a, uh, in, in my point of view, from looking at it historically. And number two, the cast and the, the way that that cast had to permeate the rest of the 20th century. Uh, one thing I will say, one of the most fascinating numbers to me, which has become a standard, was um, the uh, um, oh, it was the, it was the love song in the movie. Um, ah, okay. Uh, uh, but anyway, the, the the guy doing the dance along with the song was Bill Bailey, and is he was the brother of Pearl Bailey, a very you know very distinctive and entertainer black entertainer of the 20th century taking a chance on love that was the name of it phew mm. my memory and then he does a, a bit in the dance called the backslide it was the first moonwalk ever ever put to any kind of film and he invented the step so god you know it's just like it it just that was the that was the second thing about the film that Every aspect of these entertainers in this film influence the 20th century entertainment going forward. 
and they had to go through their own journeys to uh, adding the civil rights movement into it. So those are my two big observations. Well, the moonwalk thing is fascinating because, of course, we associate the moonwalk with, you know, Michael Jackson. You had the Jackson Five right. before he became Michael Jackson, and he was a huge bridge in, you know, sort of mainstreaming black culture, black music, uh, to the point where, I mean, you go you go to Spike Lee and do the right thing. That whole bit right. about, uh, you know, Mookie and um, was it Pino? I think talking about how. The, the Italian guy, all of his, his favorite performers are, are black, <laughs> but he won't, you know, right. he doesn't have any uh, African-Americans up on the wall of his uh, family's establishment and that kind of like weird hypocrisy. Um, right. Yeah, there's there's so much to think about here just in the context of this movie, right. I think, because of what it was and when it was made. Um, exactly. But, exactly. Yeah. And that's why it's so significant as we end Black History Month, because um, entertainment was entertainment and athletics were the entree for uh, black Americans in the 20th century as they started to break down barriers and to see the ultimate um, black movie in 1943 with the lineup of the, the best of the best, I would say was in that movie, singing, dancing, all that stuff, Com comedy with Rochester uh, is to see something of historical significance, even as somebody who observes from the outside. I yeah. can't empathize with what was going on then. That's the thing. We can we can say, well, it was, a, it was something for the period. That's how the how that's how everybody was back then. But unless you live in that era, you really can't know. You can only observe from the outside. Yeah. Um but you know we <laughs> fortunately we're not living in that that era uh, anymore yes uh, we still have a long way to go in many regards but uh, yeah. looking back on these kind of these gems that i don't think have quite the awareness that they should i mean that's why i said could this right. movie be shown in in theaters now my original point in bringing that up is i watched this on a laptop this morning right. i really just wish that i could have experienced this because it's i feel like musicals need to be experienced on a big screen with an audience who's totally like turn, you know, tuned in and turned on to what's going on. It definitely loses something when you're watching it uh, at home. Like there's that one scene where Petunia and Joe are sitting um, like under a tree and they're kind of like talking and singing to each other. And as the camera pans out, it's like this entire community of people are surrounding them. Right. And you realize that they're at the, the, the edge of a river. And it very much gave me kind of a, I think it's probably because I watched Jesus Revolution recently and there's a whole big like baptism <laughs> motif in there. I was thinking this very much is like the community of people coming together to save, you know, little Joe's soul, you know, right by the by the water. He doesn't get baptized, but there was sort of that that energy yeah. to it. And I felt like that was well, that something that I would like to see with an audience because it's sort of a surprise, you know, reveal, you know, what's going on the the wider scene there. I feel like that would have been a cool like gasp moment, maybe even a cheer. Well, it also goes back to your point about, yeah, there's religion in it, but it's not in your face religion. It's more of a subtle spiritual element. And and that shot, as as I remember it too, was very much in that in that key. Um, and Arthur Freed, of course, the producer of all the great MGM musicals, to bring Minnelli in and to make it a more 
I would say a more personal type of musical rather than a spectacular kind of musical is, is part of his genius, I think. Uh, I think this is a genius film as far as its presentation, its significance in American showbiz history, and of course, that fine cast. Well, and it's also uh, fitting that we're beginning the year uh, with Vincent Minnelli. And from what I understand, we're going to end the year with him, too. And we talk about uh, Meet Me in St. Louis, which oh uh, is the film that he met. <laughs> I think that's where he met Judy Garland, who would, you know, he did pairing would give us Liza Minnelli. So everything is related right. to that. Um, yeah, so that'll be exciting. It is. It'll be an interesting um, journey come 2023. Well, uh, speaking of interesting journeys, next month is going to be completely different. I almost guarantee it. When we talk about <laughs> Flashdance from 1983. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait for that. I have not seen this since it came out. Lo, these 40 years ago. So, as it, and I was complete. Well, I, I won't give anything away. That'll be for next month. <laughs> the, the only two things I know about Flashdance are Irene Cara's What a Feeling, which I love that song. Right. It's one of my anthems. It's a great song. Great and song. also the Bill Hicks joke when he's talking about uh, Basic Instinct. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, from the writer of Flashdance. <laughs> he's like, somebody wrote Flashdance? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we'll see. But uh, Pat McDonald right. of HollywoodChicago.com. Thanks so much. It's always fun. I can't wait to talk to you about it more is. stuff next month. Brilliant. All right, man. Take it easy and uh, be well, sir. 